Welcome to School of Everything Else. Saga. We started living in an old house. Mama gave birth and we were checking it out. It was a baby boy, so we bought him a toy. It was a raker and it was 1981. We named him Baby. He had a toothache. He started crying. It sounded like an earthquake. It didn't last long because I stopped it. This is a comic series written by Brian K. Vaughan, who penned Why the Last Man, which still might just be my favourite comic series. We did a show on Why the Last Man back on Digital Gonzo circa 2013, and you can find that on the School of Everything Else archives. And I don't think people know that this thing, like some people know this thing exists, but some people don't. Uh, If you check out the current feed on School of Movies, there's like a hundred of our best shows. And people are asking, well, where's this show? Where's that show? They are on two completely separate podcast feeds. We've got the School of Movies Archive, which is all of our movie shows in chronological order of when we release them. And the School of Everything Else Archive, video games, books, comics, TV, everything else. Saga is currently ongoing and unfinished, being released monthly, as comics tend to do. So we can't give you a show that encapsulates the whole thing. However... Neither can we just cover book one and send you guys off to read what follows. Gibson Bradfield, who commissioned this one, pointed out quite rightly that there are a ton of YouTube channels with a video about the first book. But because nobody wants to spoil it, there's no discussion on books two, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight, which is where we're up to right now. Principally because that diminishes the audience figures the further you go, so it actually hurts your ratings to do so. People who haven't read book two aren't going to watch the video for book two. People who haven't read book three and so forth until by the time you're talking about book eight, you've got a fraction of your audience. But we like being the only people to talk passionately about something obscure or unloved, like Flight of Dragons or Hancock or Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, or We're Back a Dinosaur Story or The Thief and the Cobbler or even Swiss Army Man. It just being obscure isn't enough for us. We have to feel something. And this isn't so much obscure as that the rarefied, soft, quivering underbelly of a comic series that nobody dares to tickle. So tickle we shall. And that means this whole show is going to be pretty damn spoilerific. You either go read eight books straight and come back or be prepared to have stuff discussed before you read it. That's the way this particular delicious cookie crumbles. But we can all recommend this one, right? Yes. Yeah, I say so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> With us are Karu Nagisa. Salutan. And Debbie Morse. Hello of sequentially yours one thing you could do folks is just listen to us for a bit we'll try and stay on book one to begin with as we establish who these guys are and then i'll start talking about like from now on book one like post one spoilers but we're going to be spoiling book one so if you haven't read it at all maybe go read book one and come back or uh, one thing i did suggest was uh, wait until there's a comiXology sale buy book one read it really quickly (laughs) And then buy all the rest of them, because that way you get them all in one go. And then go read all of them, and once those are all done, come back and listen to our show on it. Again, it's it's a little dicey, and I think we're going, this is going to be a low listener 
show. However, I also think that there are going to be a bunch of listeners who are like, well, I have never heard of this. Tell me about it. And just will, you know, be fine hearing about it. In all seriousness, I actually don't think it's going to necessarily spoil it. Like, in a way that you're like, I wish I hadn't known this. The, right, okay. What I will it might say in fact is make the, it better. the kind of discussion that we are likely to end up having in the time that we have available to us mm. is likely to be more conceptual than anything else. Yeah. Um, we probably won't be dissecting the plot in detail. Not the specific individual movements. Yeah, that's It'll be what I'm more saying. kind of character arc yeah. based. The only and thing themes. that might really spoil it, and for some people this will be an issue, and for others it might not, is character death. Yeah, there are quite a few character deaths, and we will be talking. Here's the other thing we aren't going to say, and you know, such and such a character, and we're not going to talk about what happens to them. This time we actually have. Because that immediately gives it away. Yeah, well. <laughs> Well, that, but also, like, we're not going to say whether they live or die. Like, no one's talking about whether they live or die. We have to be the only ones who do. Exactly. We've got to be the pioneers on this one. May they rest in peace. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, feasibly, we could come back and do another show that concludes Saga. I mean, they could do two more books. They could do eight more books. They could do 18 more books. They could just keep going. They could be cancelled. We don't know. You know, but we're still waiting to come back and do seasons four, five, and six of Community. So, and I've I've been wanting to come back, go back and do the Green Lantern animated series and make that spoilerific. We spent all that time talking about the comics and the stupid movie, we and we should have been and talking we were about. Like, we're not going to spoil it because we want you to go and watch it, but, but nobody did. Well, nobody ever came back and said, you know what? That was one of the best animated shows I've ever seen. What an arc! So I, I wish we'd just talked about it then when we could, when we had everyone available, when we just watched it. Yeah. And I'm going to be peppering the show with an eclectic soundtrack that I would fill the movies with to establish an oddball tone whilst delivering a thematic resonance, Wes Anderson style, were I in charge of it. This next one is Tasman Archer with Sleeping Satellite from 
deserting the violence, and to add insult to grave cultural injury, they give birth to a child of two species named Hazel, a little baby girl with horns and wings. Saga is the saga of their flight from being hunted by all kinds of soldiers and freelancers and the foul-mouthed Prince Robot IV with a television for a head. The framing device is the narration of Hazel herself telling us about what her family did in retrospect. It's only ever in text and we are not privy to how old our narrator is now. She could be eight. She could be 80. The only thing that is assured is her consciousness and the ability to tell us a story. It has a very colloquial style in that everybody talks in that heightened, clever, rude way that Brian K. Vaughan must think, which is unusual for Space Dungeons and Dragons, and it comes off a bit like Guardians of the Galaxy. However, it's also extremely graphic in its violence and sexual content, with genitals of many species flapping about in various states of arousal, with literal blue language spattered all over the place, and sudden, shocking death and injury just a page turn away, making it more like a Game of Thrones with less of a sadistic streak. And it's a Game of Thrones that often feels like they're writing off-book, like there's no grand plan, and they will just keep running and going and growing older as they gain new allies and bid tearful farewells to old ones. Friends and family are buried, or worse, left behind in the wake of desperate escape, as the cold fury and indignation over Hazel's very existence chases and chases them across the stars from planet to planet. There are many themes touched upon that reoccur, and in our travels tonight we will attempt to hone in on the central thesis of this sprawling book. However... I don't believe we have to reach conclusions because the book has not yet reached conclusions. We can merely postulate, consider, lay down, ruminate. Hmm. Okay. So, um, let's start with a, a character study of Marco and Alana. And, uh, like, the, like, if these guys were tedious and off-putting, this whole book wouldn't work. Mm. So... Let's just explore amongst ourselves what really works about Marco and Alana. Maybe a little of some of their peccadillos, or mm. but why they work as heroes and function as the story's main characters. I, I would just say very quickly that most importantly, they're not shiny and perfect and heroic because if they were, that would be equally off-putting. Yeah, um, they are flawed. They make some stupid decisions from time to time. And they make some very heroic decisions from time to time. And I think that's what keeps... Sometimes that's the same decision. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, and I think that's what keeps them compulsive in terms of you want to know what's going to happen to them next. I absolutely agree. The book was a lot funnier than I expected. It had me laughing. I, I get probably what would you say, four or five laughs out of each issue almost? At least, yeah, big ones. And at the same time, you get probably at least one gut punch, if not every episode, almost every episode. Mm. Or every every book, excuse yeah. me. Um, Vaughn uh, has said, just talked about the gut punch idea, that he um, he feels that a cliffhanger needs to be genuine, and it needs to be earned. Um, and so he tries very, very hard to make sure that every single gut punch, every single cliffhanger, everything he does has that emotional backing to it before he even considers writing it down. Mm. Um, 
one thing that's going back to Mark, going to Marco real quick. One thing that I love about him is that we're seeing him transition and still find his way. So many characters come to us ready-made with an arc that is essentially, I need to learn this one thing, but otherwise I'm fine. Whereas he has so many things going on with him. Uh, One of the things that I like is that he starts out dedicated to pacifism. And we see that move him move away from that as the book goes on. It's not a grand, that's it, I've given up the pacifist life. It's a more subtle change of, I recognize that sometimes there are things that I'm going to have to do that I don't like, but I still feel that violence only begets violence. Hmm. There are things worth doing violence for, things worth fighting for. Well, considering that the one of the principles that lies behind conscientious objection, um, as I understand it, and I, I could be wrong on this, but the the idea that you're, it's your conscience that is guiding you on this... You're not simply doing something because someone else is telling you to. You decide what your role is in this particular conflict. Um, and that is is very strong in Marco's character. Um, just to go briefly back to what you're saying about the cliffhanger as well, Karu, The for me, it almost felt like the, the end of the stories, they're not cliffhangers as such because you're not wondering how this particular situation is going to turn out. You get the ending and it is often tragic what you're looking for in the next book is how in the name of buggery fuck are they coming back from this one Mm. it's different if you read all eight books in a row which uh, i did as opposed to if you read it month to month and you like have to wait 30 days between each issue that would be actually no that's a very good point there there probably were quite a few cliffhangers in between the individual issues Mm. but for me i read it as as eight collected volumes end to end um and so that that rhythm of the shit hits the fan and then the the beginning of the next book is how and indeed are they going to get back from this Mm -hmm. yeah we've been reading individual issues um because i'm way too into this now so i have i have to know what's going i can't wait for the next you know five six months yes yeah six months and then vacation anza after that (laughs) um so yeah it's one of those i just finished like two nights ago i think the latest issue and i'm dying for the next one Right, so you technically know a little bit more than we do. Just just a touch. It's you know, a first issue of an arc, so tears on the sleeve of a man. Don't wanna be a boy today. I heard the eternal footman bought himself a bike to race. Greggy writes letters and burns his CDs. They say you are something in those formative years. Well, hold on to nothing as fast as you can. to Marco and Alana actually and how their character arcs intersect and develop one thing that occurred to me is that they 
mirror their planets. Marco is... His arc is to do with himself, his internal monologue, if you like, his decisions about the things he does. And that kind of reflects this uh, role of Wreath as this little moon that has um, a, a traditional way of doing things and, um, and, and operates on magic more than anything else. And Alana's arc is less to do with herself and more to do with her interactions with everyone else. And that does reflect uh, Landfall's role as this massive planet that is technologically advanced and um, incredibly arrogant in terms of how they they feel they have the right to tell people what to do. Um, And seeing the way they act around each other and how they orbit around each other is this constant reminder of where they come from and what they reflect. And I really liked that. I thought that was a, a really interesting way of um, of expanding on the characters of two individuals and letting them demonstrate the character of these entire races. Yeah. In a way, showing how they can, on a wider scale, find peace. Amongst amongst themselves and end this centuries long war. Yeah, there's um, a bit where uh, uh, Heist, the uh, the novelist they uh, meet along the way, uh, says that the opposite of war is not peace. Anyone want to tell me what the opposite of war is? Sex. Yes, uh, <laughs> it relates. Uh, uh, he's talking to Prince Robot at the time, and Prince Robot thinks back to. Uh, is it when he was um, delirious and, and imagining his entire platoon engaged in an orgy? Yes, just yeah. just after he got shot, and I that was it. Not, yeah, was it just before or after the medic got there? I'm not sure whether it was. It medic- was. It was just reduced. before because the uh, the medic um, is is this, is it a giant mouse. Yeah, like fixes him up, and then uh, the horns gas them with a magic gas, and the poor mouse explodes. But you do actually get to see in the comic a little flash of what um, Prince Robot's thinking of, and this is like this is jumping ahead. But in terms of the thesis on on war in the uh, in the book itself, it feels like a ending is somehow convinced. And this it sounds absurd, but it just, like I I wonder if there'll be something along these lines. An ending is to convince both sides to fuck each other's brains out rather than killing each other. <laughs> Maybe in a smaller localized situation, but the whole like what Hazel represents is that is the let's just drop our guns and fuck and put aside our differences and, and just embrace the things that we have in common. And it's crass and crude to equate. Uh, just a, a straightforward lust-filled orgy with the beautiful union that results in childbirth. And more specifically, it's an NC-17 version of what if everybody loved each other. But the book is also crass. Yeah. So it's not above the book, or it's not beneath the book, to actually make that the ending. Like, they release a fuck bomb or something. <laughs> this is obviously just off the top of my head. But when this finally does end, folks, if I'm wrong about this... Then, okay, that it was it was just a stupid idea, but it feels like it, it can't simply be 
that, you know, Hazel survives and the war ends. There has to be something pronounced that gets the wings and the horns to stop fighting in a way that you would remember that's different from all the other stories. Mm. Because this has done things over and over again that are different from all the other stories. That's very true. and I, I Not mean, necessarily better, but definitely different. You say that there's uh, <laughs> the juxtaposition of the, the lust-filled orgy and the, the creation of a, a child. I, I mean, I would say, honestly, that uh, Vaughan probably wouldn't necessarily see Draw that um, distinction. much distinction mm. between them. They're, they're both, in their own way, creative acts. And the line between him and heteronormativity is is a pretty swirly one, I would say. That's probably the best way of putting it. This is a pretty right-on comic, just in terms of uh, gender representation and uh, gender fluidity. Absolutely. But that opposition of war being sex, I mean, that if you extrapolate that into um, destruction and life... Creation. As, you know, sex being a manifestation of that life force, that's Freudian. That was one of Freud's fundamental things, that we are all driven by a life force and a death force. And the life force in most adults expresses itself sexually. Um, And Freud had ideas about how young you had to be before it started expressing itself sexually that people later on kind of disagreed with. But that's kind of beside the point. Uh, There are, in unhealthy people, those things sometimes get twisted up. And that happens frequently in this, where you have characters who are desperately trying to express their desire for life, and they do so by killing people, Mm. because they don't know any other way of doing it, or what it is that they're trying to express has become twisted or corrupted by something, and it's, it's coming out of them in the wrong way, or they are being manipulated or controlled by someone else either in the old-fashioned kind of brain puppeteering kind of way or in the we have a hold over you of some kind whether that be emotional or literal Mm. and that I thought was was one of the things that really engaged me was just seeing where all these threads plat into each other where people's um, fundamental core was coming out clean or coming out messed up and you can see the degree of that in various different characters and sometimes the ones that you decide fairly early on are really messed up and are never going to be able to get those those motivations clean they do and it's a real surprise when they do Part of that is what makes Saga so great and why um, among comic circles you can almost divide comics into before Saga and after Saga <laughs> is because really the only villain per se in this is war conceptually. Every other person is is fully fleshed out to the point that they can make those transitions. Mm. Four has become one of my favorite characters. Yeah. He really has. I absolutely adore him despite his flaws because of the changes that I've seen throughout the series. Mm, yeah. 
Yeah, and the realizations that he has as well that are um, they are as often spontaneous as they are the result of somebody beating them into him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The way that the, the whole series approaches um, sex as well, I think, is interesting in the sense that the pleasure planet Sextillion is usually presented negatively. It's a place where you go to escape reality and to kind of fall apart. But also, it is characterized by its anonymity. You go that it's you know everybody there is very much into we protect our people's privacy, etc., etc., etc. We know You're you not... only by your credit cards. Exactly, yeah. But you can't make the connection that uh, Heist is talking about when he talks about sex being the opposite of war. Mm. Yeah. He's he's talking about that connection that you make with people, even when and you know. Again, Vaughn and Staples uh, present sex, almost all sex, as somewhat realistic in the sense that it's kind of messy and doesn't really have that movie quality that so many people associate with sex, particularly young people. And weird things pop into your head at inopportune moments. Yeah. And then you spend Exa- ten minutes going, where the fuck did that come from? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's very frank and honest. Uh, Alana is maybe the most attractive uh, character to me in uh, in, in comics. Uh, she's presented as a um, a woman, warts and all, and like the first line out of her mouth is, "Am I shitting? I think I'm shitting," and it's when she's giving birth. And that, that, like that is a like laying it down at the beginning. Right? Okay. So like she's giving birth. We are not going to romanticize this whatsoever. Sometimes this happens. This is the stuff we left out of the raising a geek child. <laughs> but with good reason. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but Alana, throughout the uh, story, goes through some some serious art. She she has dips. She makes really <sighs> destructive oversights and. I, they're all human and understandable. Like she's developed to the point where you can understand what she spins upon, what, where you know what will immediately arouse her interest, what will crush her downwards. And uh, I, one of the reasons she's so attractive is because she feels like a real person and extremely vibrant. I, I felt similarly about Tulip O'Hare when I read Preacher the first time, but going back, there, there are some serious crazy holes in there and the, the way Tulip is portrayed on the TV series of Preacher is is almost repellent to me. Mm. Um, it's certainly very very different from the way she is in the books. Yeah but I, I still really like Tulip but, but there are problems there which I don't have with Alana and every, everything that Alana does seems consistent even and especially her mistakes mm. well, and, she's, and bad choices. Uh, the, one of the things that I think characterises Alana the most is her impulsivity. Mm. She um, she does, again, we talked about this whole stupid decisions and heroic decisions and sometimes they're the same decisions and Alana often seems to make choices on a whim. But if you look closely, you can see what motivates them and mm. you can see... The uh, there's there's a real good at the heart of everything she does, even and especially when it ends up leading her somewhere that is dangerous or uh, or puts other people in danger. It's like when she became a drug addict. <laughs> yes, that <laughs> yeah, that would be the big one. Um, yeah. But but you like I say, if you look, you can see the line of where those choices 
began and they seem authentic and real and human. Uh-huh. During this period, uh, she's she's getting very involved in work and uh, Marco left her home with the baby, something I can sympathise with, is uh, getting increasingly lonely and isolated and he gets paid a lot of interest by a dance instructor named Ginny with a bat face who's blue and um, she immediately recognises many qualities about him which make him... A, a vibrant and attractive character that he's trying to sort of subdue and keep hidden because they're fugitives. He conducts an emotional affair and it, it causes a rift between the two of them, which splits them up for how long? Months? Maybe even it's, years? It's quite a while. They're apart yeah. for a long time. And so you feel that rift, that that devastating sense of, of loss. You know, he's angry at her for... Um, uh, for for burying herself in work for substance addiction and for not for for her for trying to escape her family for you know for this not being enough for her and she's angry at him for not just being there and solid and dependable and like that one time he says that she's Ginny is just um uh, her dance Hazel's dance instructor yeah but Hazel's not supposed to be having dance lessons. They're supposed to be laying low. So that's kind yeah. of just as bad. She's angry at him for not laying low. And uh, he he doesn't go particularly far with Ginny. But he's clearly enjoying the attention. But they Which, have this... Oh, sorry, Karen. Oh, I was just going to say, just side note is to that thought is, you know, so many people in this world would be happier if they embrace, embraced ethical non-monogamy. Just saying. <laughs> I, that situation seems like the sort of thing that might have helped Alana and Marco out a lot. But anyway, anyway, not to drag us off on a separate tangent. Um, but, but yeah, the um, Marco himself has... Uh, actually kind of reminds me of a more grown-up Yorick in uh, Why the Last Man. And he's very idealistic, certainly. Yeah, he's quite strong-headed, and uh, he's emotionally vulnerable. And he's not... I, I, that's something I love about both him and, and Yorick. Neither of them are particularly macho. They're very supportive male characters. They don't feel like they have to be the big man, mm. which well, one of my questions is going to be, um, how would you adapt this to the screen? And you suggested... Um, Chris Evans for playing Marco, and I'm like, you know what? That kind of makes sense. He has yeah. this, yeah, um, this this beautiful um, dignity to him, mm. which Marco has. There's a there's a genuineness to him as well, which you would need for Marco, um, and a degree of humility. Which the the thing that we were struggling with over the casting was in terms of age, he'd need to be somebody in his sort of mid thirties, early to mid thirties. And I, I felt it would be tricky to get a, a good Hollywood actor around that age that hadn't already had the arrogance isn't the wrong word, but the, there's a certain level of um, confidence that you have to have mm to get that far in Hollywood. You you might maybe get that humility and, and um, uh, sort of authentic unsureness 
of themselves in a younger actor, but that wouldn't fit with where the character is in his life. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I think Chris Evans could pull him off. He'd, uh, he'd have to sort of skinny down a little bit again, <laughs> stop eating all oh. those potatoes. But <laughs> I don't think anyone would complain if he sort of reached a, a happy medium. Much. I mean, yeah. he's still pretty buff in the yeah. comic. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, he, he is. He is <laughs> drawn by. Is it Fiona Staples? Fiona Staples, yeah. yeah. He's drawn by Fiona Staples as looking particularly hot yeah. and with these massive yeah. ram horns. Absolutely. There's there's, yeah. there's plenty for the female gaze in this book, oh my God. I will say that. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Um, there's plenty for everybody oh, in those yes. books. There totally is. Um, but, um, but, yeah, I mean, one of the things that I would say about what happens between the two of them uh, when they do end up separated and th- they do have that rift between them... One of the things that seems to have fundamentally driven the wedge between them is that they have they have lost track of each other's dimensionality. They've started to think of each other as only being one or two things. And when other things come to the surface, that's where the conflict arises um, because they're becoming very, very focused on their own little circle and how those circles interact. Again, if you think of them as, as kind of orbiting around each other, it only takes sometimes the slightest little thing to knock that kind of of intense... I don't want to say codependent because that implies a degree of unhealthiness for both parties. Symbiosis. Um, but yeah, that kind of symbiotic relationship. If if one person gets knocked off course a little bit, then if you don't realise that that's happened and you don't have the resources available to course correct, then it can very easily become both of you are off course. And before you know it, those orbits are starting to slip. Um, and I thought the way that was presented was very real and very heartfelt. And at no point did I ever feel I needed to take sides. There was no sense of, well, he's completely in the right and she's totally in the wrong or vice versa. It was all, well, that was a little thing that she did. And then he did that little thing as well. And then before you know it, the, the, dance is completely off course mm-hmm. it's a it's like it's a real relationship mm. it's that's so many times when couples break up that's what happens mm, absolutely and and i think for the way this story goes and for for when in the story this happens it is absolutely vital that you don't take sides because then when they come back together it's that much more satisfying that makes us their friends who have to not take sides yeah exactly <laughs> exactly and then and, you know you sat there thinking well if if I do take sides then what happens if you get back together again and then it gets all awkward because you've said some really horrible things I told you that bitch about crazy on your back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah don't do that
And then, and then, of course, the whole time you're thinking about the, what's in the middle of all this, which is Hazel. That, that ultimately she, if they don't find a way to reconnect and re-establish this orbit, she loses the potential for that focus and caring from both her parents at the same time, which is something that's obviously incredibly important to her, even at that young age. Yeah. Plus, metaphorically, she loses part of that balance that makes her so special and unique. It's not just that she is the child of a Reether and a Landfallian. It's that she is being raised by them and getting these different perspectives and these different um, these different cultures that shape her individually. For example, when Marco was talking to Alana and saying, of course I'm going to teach her how to spell. Why wouldn't I? It's part of her heritage. That's to make spells, folks, not just to spell. <laughs> yeah. But the, it, it's uh, one thing I love about that is that it's a pun because it's also a la- it's about speaking in a language. Mm-hmm. Their magic is based on linguistic things. And one thing I love about the Reether language is that it's basically poorly translated Esperanto. Oh right. I wonder about that because yeah. this is this right. This is something that absolutely fascinated me about the language, and I I used to have quite a decent linguistic ability when I was younger in terms of picking up other languages. I have lost nearly all of it now. I have a smattering of French, a few words in German, and I can pick out a few words in Spanish and Italian, but. Yeah. The roots of words, the patterns of words, is something that always, when I look at them, it feels like they, they make sense just about. That's It's like on the tip of my brain if I search hard enough. And I loved the fact that when it starts out, when they when anybody's speaking in um, the, the language of Wreath, it's in this blue text, and most of it gets translated early on. So you get to know what people are saying. And at some point, that stops. But I realised I still knew what they were saying. Even though I couldn't read it, there'd be the odd word here or there that would make sense. Like arse face. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Another preacher reference. Either because they'd said that same thing earlier and it it came in combination with the translation, or because it was similar to a a word that I already knew. Um, There's a point where Clara turns round and says, you shut your mouth. And and she says it in in wreath language, and I knew exactly what she said. Clara is uh, Marco's mother. Yes, sorry. Um, Jumping in characters there that we don't know yet. Um, or, co- it's, or context. From yeah, context. exactly. Or it's made very clear from yeah, um, the, the imagery that's going on in the story, what's happening yeah. and, and what they mean. Um, so Marco's dream yeah. about the flying or yeah, jumping. Absolutely. So, um, but I, I loved the way that was played with. Um, and there's, there's certain things about some of the spells as well that has a, um, a philosophical edge to it that really, really moved me Can you explain the, uh, the freeze response? Um, the, the one specific example of this um, is it comes towards the end and... Of book eight. Of, yeah, the end of book eight, so up to where we are. And Marco is teaching Hazel how to spell um, something in particular. It's, it's electrical in nature. And... <clears throat> 
the he has to get her to is it like to zap Alana in the chest. Yeah, to, to make, make her, her heart back. start yeah. again. Yeah. And he can't do it because his spell would be too powerful and it would kill and her. But because her, yeah. Hazel's only little, her spell would be more more gentle and would achieve the desired effect. So he gives her the word, which I can't remember. <laughs> doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, but I'll, I do need to find that out for reasons. Yeah. Um, but he says that every, every spell that the um, exists in the wreath culture ha- needs ingredients. So for some ingredients, they might need fresh snow. For others, they might need a secret that nobody else has ever heard. This particular one, the fuel for this spell is doubt. And he's telling Hazel to you because she's saying, I don't think I can do this. And he says, right, well, that's what you need to cast this spell is doubt. So you, you feel that doubt and use it to to cast this spell and he talks about what doubt does is it paralyzes you and makes you feel like you can't move and what you do is you gather that up and you channel it into doubting that you can't do it doubting that something is impossible and it hit me that he's that fits perfectly with the freeze response that lies between fight and flight that what what that freeze response is and in some animals it serves a purpose in and of itself because it enables you to hide under a bush and play dead in the hope that you will either be not found or if you are found that your predator will think you're already dead and therefore not worth their time and go away and it buys you that time Um, to save yourself where the other two responses might not help. However, I have a lot of difficulty with the freeze response because where it is, where it lies for me is in my body being literally unable to choose between fight or flight, desperately wanting to do both, not sure which is the better option. And again, in small doses, it buys you time to get more information and to make a decision but you're out you're then out of that immediate emotional adrenaline response you're making a conscious decision based on information so what actually ends up happening when I get caught in that moment is I can't move I can't move I can't think I can't speak I can't respond in any way all I can do is sit there and wait for it to pass and in the way he describes this spell it occurred to me that doubt is the very fuel to get me out of that because in that moment where I can't make a decision whether to run or fight I could do anything absolutely anything everything is possible in that moment and that might just be enough to kick me out of that sitting there going I can't do anything I can't move so I'm going to use that so there you go, Brian K. Vaughan. If nothing else, thank you for that. <laughs> Full mo. Full mo. That's the one. That's it. Ah. Full mo. Are you still mad? I kicked you out of bed. Are you still mad? I gave you ultimatums. Are you still mad? I compared you to all my four. Still mad I shared our
The introduction of Marco's parents, uh, is it in the first book? It's either the first or the second, yeah, it's very it's, early it's, on. Yeah. It's very early on, I think it's, it's actually the, the tail end of the first book. Um, Clara, Whichever book it is, it's the very end. Yeah. yeah. Clara, his mother, and Bar, his father, they're both magic users. They sold their house to get the armour to come and find him. And immediately they, they pair off. So Marco goes with his mother and um, uh, Bar ends up first shocking and then uh, looking after Alana. And he reveals to her uh, that he hasn't told anybody else, but he has only a short while to live. And as he, you know, as he's doing this, he's also spinning her some new clothes. Uh, he's an armorer, so he's making her just casual clothes that will be um, somewhat resistant to bullets and magic. And she's elated with this. Like, first off, she starts off hostile, and then she realizes that, you know, the idea of a father who's a seamstress is amazing and you know, he wants to make a bunch of stuff to mix and match it just hit me so hard how much I would have liked a father who is that immediately selfless because there is a deep deep prejudice running through the horns that means that they would find uh, the wings disgusting and repulsive and hateful and they automatically are, are, are extremely um angry with Marco but just seeing Hazel is enough to get them to come around and the way this book handles things like that it never lays on the syrup it never like there's always a a brusque almost crass frankness about it but it always seems earnest and honest and true and human and like it would require an R rating because this is what grown ups say and think and it's, you know, th- th- their thoughts are complex and that they're riven with their own weaknesses and prejudices. But, uh, you know, Barr is this just wonderful father straight off. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was rereading that part yesterday and uh, tearing up. And then we watched um, uh, About Time earlier today, which is the best thing Richard Curtis has ever done. And mm-hmm. uh, it's about family again. And I just thought this just seems remarkably appropriate. And again, Bill Nye plays this wonderful father figure. And I just, I don't know what it... It's its a, an, a yearning for a good father replacing the anger over a bad one, which mm-hmm. is an emotional... Uh, not so much roller coaster. It hits me like a, a truck every time. Bar unfortunately uh, dies saving them early on, and Clara sticks with them and ends up. Does she just sort of end up getting discarded in jail? Like she's there, but she's like, I'm just going to stick around, <laughs> getting tattoos. Yeah, pretty much. She stayed in yeah in the refugee camp. She she uh, like tag teams with um, uh, Petricor. Petricor, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, who is a, uh, a a transgender horn? Is that is that yes. yeah yeah yes? So uh, born with a male body but transitioned to female, and they they pull no punches. And she's um, <clears throat> she's very kind of uh, cagey about who she is and how she feels. And she's not sitting on a hell of a lot of memories and quite a lot of resentment and anger. But she's also got this wistfulness about her, uh, and it, it makes her kind of this. 
the, the fact that uh, Hazel discovers her in the shower and immediately is like, ah, oh, so you got a dick. Okay, that's that's uh, that's un- unusual. And and the, she starts getting spiky in a kind of don't judge me way. But then the, the child is like, no, I just find it interesting. And they can bond on the fact that both of them are anomalies. In, in this world, that both of them go against the norm. She has horns and, and uh, wings, and, and, and Petricor is transgender. It's um, the group may as well be called the Losers Club, in that, that everyone, <laughs> pretty much everyone there is an outcast of some sort, mm. and at the same time, they are someone of deep, deep character. I think part of what um, forms the, the bond between Hazel and Petricor, as well, is the idea that they both have bodies that would cause other people to make assumptions about them yeah um and and they are both more than that (laughs) is is the simple way of putting it and uh petrichor as well without wanting to leap forward too quickly leap um, okay um has one of in my opinion the best moments in the whole story that epitomizes what I was saying earlier about that whole death force and life force getting twisted up together um, because she and uh, Four have... Four is Prince Robot the Fourth, who is a prince with a TV on his head. But he gets exiled and therefore doesn't count as a prince anymore. Sir Robot. Yes, Sir Robot. Um, They they are both driven by a furious desire for revenge. And while Robot's is... um, His impulses towards death, getting all platted up with his impulses towards sex... Um, are more complex simply because we've known him for longer and we've seen it happen and revolve around so many times. Mm. Um, and in Petricor, we've only known her for a fairly short time, so it's not as... Uh, not as... What's the word? We, we don't know as much about the way her mind works. Um, but they they get in a fight over this, and this is what I meant about people who have the most messed up perceptions of of what life and death are to them suddenly have it all come clean again and they they just i was i was sat there going this is gonna happen it's pretty obvious but it was still brilliant when it happened and they just fall into each other's arms and it's like yes Uh Uh it's if sharon did it remind you of certain things from buffy yeah oh my god yes do you know that didn't occur to me but now you you say that yes Yes, it did. <laughs> and it is refreshing that it's not just a, a standard guy's guy shouting at a girl who's uptight, uh, mm. uh, what jumps Wobben, who himself has been under fire in recent years. He got criticised for it, but he also criticised Jurassic World for setting up the Chris Pratt and Dallas Bryce Howard. The, the dichotomy of the uptight girl who just needs to loosen up and she just needs a rough-and-tumble guy to make her do it. Prince Robot is not that rough-and-tumble guy, and Petricor no. is not that girl. No. So it's a nice uh, uh, change around yeah. on that. But, but specifically f- uh, on her part, it comes immediately after her going through mm. um, a very painful, if brief, period of wanting to be dead, basically, yeah. feeling like there's there's nothing for her 
now other than death and all of a sudden there is something for her other than death so mm. that's another reason by the way uh, why i had uh, I, I i wanted to avoid having robin and gwendolyn fight throughout the whole of the princess thieves mm. if they were like bickering and it's like oh they're gonna do it in the end anyway and it's like no we've seen that story mm. let's have them be remarkably easy around each other from jump street mm. that that whole stereotype thing is is extra stupid because i won't there are couples that are that way, but that's pretty rare. Mm. It's a super common trope, and in real life, that's not that common. Mm. Yeah. Well, generally, if you if you meet somebody in real life and you're fighting with them, it's for a reason. It, yeah. You, know, you, you might think it's one reason, it's actually another reason, but the whole you meet somebody and you're constantly verbally sparring with them because you fancy the pants off each other. I'd, I'd love to say that that's happened repeatedly throughout my life, but it really hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> it might have happened to some of you guys. Tell us, if you are Beatrice or, and or Benedict, yeah. <laughs> if that has happened to you guys. Indeed, yeah. But then I suppose that's in part because my way of fighting with somebody is actually to go all cold and quiet and ignore them completely, yeah, no which fun is, at all. is no too. good for verbal sparring. Clara a little. The, one of the things that kind of defined Clara, uh, when they stay at uh, D. Oswald Heist, who's the writer of a pulpy novel uh, that uh, Alana fell deeply in love with immediately because it said so much about the world that she was thinking, which is that beneath the subtext of, uh, of this tra- you know, trashy novel about a girl who meets a monster and they fall in love and they just kind of hang out and watch movies all the time and eat pizza... It's the shape of water. It's the make love not war side of things, and it's it's a, a political text disguised as Barbara Cartland trash. Heist is the one who comes up with the the opposite of war is not peace. Peace is just the waiting for war to happen. Uh, but Clara and he spar on Clara, who's now lost her husband and is is grieving. Heist says that, uh, you know, re- uh, fictional violence, great, super entertaining, love it. Real life violence, terrible, hate it. Uh, and Clara counters that with that's the kind of words that come from a pacifist who's never had to defend soil that thousands of generations uh, before him have uh, tilled the land on. And um, it's, she described it as a, a grace in fighting, which is. It's 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 the kind of statement that invites uh, questioning, and there are several questions like that, uh, or at least uh, ideas like that, posited throughout the book without a solid answer given. And there are times, sometimes, when the book can feel like it's being a little bit crass. Uh, the they got, there's an abortion planet 
where it feels a bit like, well, isn't this edgy? Like, we got a whole planet for just abortions, and you want... Is it an abortion town? Or? It's, yeah, it's a planet which is basically... Sorry. Um, it's a planet which is so far away from uh, the jurisdiction of anywhere that has uh, anti-abortion laws that it's the only place that could have this, but they have, a, mm. a like, a Deadwood-style town... Mm. Uh, where they perform abortions. And, and they, they still have parameters and rules that they won't go outside, but then there's the Badlands where they'll do anything that's that, of that you ask rednecks. for, if, as um, long as you can pay for it. But the, the, it never draws any, like, philosophical... Nothing that's really challenging on abortion, so it kind of feels like they've thrown in this very strong flavour without really having the counterbalance of the philosophy to justify it well i think i think for me because i had a bit of difficulty with this section and the main reason was because they they do throw in a handful of observations about terminating pregnancies and uh, thoughts and ideas about that, that various different cultures have had and they don't draw any conclusions, and the implication certainly seems to be it's up to people to make up their own mind. But it's not, because people who it, make up their own mind and decide, no, abortion's wrong, let's legislate it that abortion is wrong. And then since they've made up their minds and they've made a legal decision on it, everyone else has to abide by that. What, what I mean is that the, if the book is putting across anything, it's that people should be able to make up their hmm. own minds. However... I found it to be a little bit of a, a kind of a roadblock in my appreciation of the story because it felt a bit like, well, we're either thousands of years ahead of where we are now or we're thousands of light years away from where we are now and you're still having this discussion. <laughs> it's depressing because it's like, wow, maybe a thousand years from now, if we're still alive, we'll still be debating it. Mm, yeah. Um, and it just it just did feel a little bit like they there had to be that feeling of well there's here's the justification. Hmm. It's not something that I particularly want to get into on the podcast, um, but I just it almost felt like it had been it was a point that Vaughan wanted to make, hmm. and it wasn't well, strong enough a point to make. Yeah. Yeah. It, especially given that the context, the, the part of that that puzzled me a bit was the fact of the context of it is the fact that this is a pregnancy. The baby's the baby was no longer alive, mm. and so yes, technically it's an abortion, but it's it would be if she gave birth to this baby, the baby would be stillborn. There's not you know. There's no no whatever you know whatever again not going into politics, but whatever the belief about. About there's no life there. Mm. There's no debate to be had. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's, you're you're talking at this stage about a medical procedure to to finish something that's already happened. It's a question as to uh, whether assisted suicide is okay on somebody who's going to be dead in eight hours in agonising pain. It's like you know what real debate should we have here while this person's screaming? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Should we just get this shit done and then debate it later? Indeed. Although, as Debbie points out, it's even worse than this debate because it's like debating over whether we should, in fact, remove an arrow from someone's artery, perform surgery on them to stop them from bleeding to death. Or do we decide that that arrow was there because it was God's will? And who are we to remove it and sew them back up again? 
The, the other one that, that kind of stuck out for me was Curtie's super religious family. Curtie is a little weasel creature, meerkat, meerkat creature from a planet of meerkats. And uh, the, the, his grandmother is very religious, and it turns out by the end of the book that their planet is about to be destroyed. Well, or? They, live, they live on a comet, and yeah. it's about to crash into um, something that will destroy them. And she believes that, they, you know, that this is in, intended, and that they well, the, either God will give them salvation or he will destroy them, but she doesn't want to get on a spaceship and change her stars. Is that right? It's, uh, she, it's, they've come across these bodies before, and the comet has missed them by... A very narrow margin, and so they believe that God yeah. saved them, and that all they have to do is have faith, and God will save them yeah. again. And uh, the team saga are like, now you really do need to come with us, Meerkat family. Please don't, you know, doom your grandchild to to this because of your beliefs. And Grandma's like, I choose to believe what I was programmed to believe. And um, <laughs> they have to leave tearfully, and then these meerkats all die. The end. And it's like, ah, oh, see, well, you kind of got to leave stupid religious people to their stupid religious beliefs, even if it kills them. One second, guys. Um, the problem is not that their stupid be- religious beliefs might kill them. It's that beliefs are now so dumb and dangerous that, say, I don't know, anti-vaxxers with their stupid beliefs <laughs> will kill Everyone with smallpox. It's not about just, you know, get up and leave them. It's about if you stand there going, well, they're entitled to their beliefs. I guess you just kind of got to let them get on with it. They're plague rats. (laughs) And again, the, the logical... And by the way, this is not me saying religious beliefs are stupid. This is me saying that was their argument. Mm. Because they don't have a, like, you know, there is no purity to what they are presenting. They're not saying, well, you know, on, on some level, what they believe is actually spiritually right. It's like, no, they're dead. They were wrong. There is no debate there to be had either. Well, the, the, again, like the whole abortion thing, it almost seems like there's a, there's a very, logical conclusion to this particular example because they know that the comet is going to crash they know everybody's going to die the the point can your science explain why it rains yes 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 Yes, Yes, it it can can. um (laughs) the point is not the validity of the belief the point is the extent to which it um enforces in this case death on other people curtie does not choose to have this religious belief. Bigger. He's had it enforced upon him by his family. So say an anti-vaxxing and he may family. Not be, he may not be actively fighting it, but at the same time, he is a child. It wasn't his choice. Um, which, when you look at that, for, or I can't even say you for this one because it's such a personal perspective, but when I look at that, my logic says, if you as an adult want to make a certain decision based on a belief, that's your call. Nobody has the right to stop you making that decision. However, there is a line around you. And when you cross that line and the the consequences of that thing that you choose to believe in start to have an impact on other people, that's when it becomes no longer acceptable. That plays into the larger theme that without examining the things that you believe they become dangerous. Um, it's This war has been going on for centuries because people believe things about the other side that are not necessarily true mm. and, in fact, cannot be true when you're talking about a bunch of individuals, billions and billions of people. Mm. Cannot fo- possibly be true. 
but they hold on to it and it leads to nothing but pain and destruction. Mm. And those people may be good, you know, good people in their own way, but they have a bad idea that has caused them to destroy the lives of themselves and others. Absolutely. And yeah, I think that's what's going on here is, and there's no way at this point, that entire family, they had two choices. They could, you know, force them on the ship and save their lives or let them be. Mm. Either way, their relationship with those people is over. Mm. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And and I, I think as well, this is something that ties in with, uh, with Hazel and her role as the fusion of these two tribes. And that is... Uh, right. I think I could be totally out there on this. And if I'm wrong, Brian K. Vaughan, please correct me. Um, (laughs) But Hazel, I think she's called Hazel for a very specific reason. Hazel is the wood most often used for divining rods. Divining rods point you in a particular direction. Usually it's towards water, but it can be towards all sorts of different things and the shape of a carved divining rod where a a lot of people just use um two straight rods and the idea is that when you get near where you want to be they cross um but if you carve one it's like a y shape and you hold the two ends of the y and the point where they merge and become the single stick is what points you in the right direction. And that's exactly what Hazel is. She's two sides that merge into one to guide Ooh. everybody in the right direction. I guess, and yeah. Nice. To yeah. make that right direction clear, as clear as possible, you need to see all the wrong directions in this story. And they're heartbreaking, and sometimes they're face-melting, and they're violent and horrid and there's there's a meanness and cruelty in a lot of the characters but I don't believe there is meanness and cruelty in the books if that makes sense and it's and for me it's because you've always got Hazel as this guiding stick which sounds is <laughs> a terrible way of putting it but constantly <laughs> pointing in the direction that you want to go. I do want to tag on to what you were saying, Sharon. It, it's it's a 
been a personal struggle of my my own, given that I grew up in a very very religious family, and um, and it's something I'm not personally religious anymore. But it's you know I still it's how do you how do you maintain a relationship with those people in the face of that? And sometimes you can't. Thankfully, I have been able to with my parents. But yeah, again, in that it's you know if they maintain that relationship, everybody dies. So it's sometimes you have to leave. Hmm. Sorry, not trying to bring everything down, but... (laughs) Oh, God, no. no. Thank you very much for sharing that, Debbie. Thank you. Um, there, just while we're um, like finding the, the couple of uh, problems I had with the uh, book, I don't know whether you guys did as well. There was one pop culture reference because why the last man is full of pop culture references because uh, Brian has a whole like history of the world up to around yeah. about two thousand to to go by. But here we're in outer space, and we don't even have a Peter Quill character to make references mm. there. Like we don't even Earth. know where Earth is in, in yeah. context of all of this. It yeah. may as well or not exist. Earth. Yeah. may as well so. not exist. Um, but there's one point where someone says, do you know what a fidget spinner is? And I thought, that's going to date like fuck. In fact, it already oh, dated yeah. before oh. I got to the end of my <laughs> sentence. Oh, oh yeah, I, I picked on that. I picked up on that one, too. I'm like... Do you know what a fidget spinner is? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's, it's a tiny little thing, but like avoid stuff like that, like the yeah. plague, if you're doing stuff that's set in other planets. But the other one uh, is, is there's a few too many instances of the C word. Uh, specifically, when, it, when a woman gets called this in a derogatory fashion, that is like a big red alarm bell for, for uh, yeah, I'm going to say most people. I mean, other people are like, oh, it doesn't bother me. That's fine. It's fine if it doesn't bother you. A lot of people it does. It bothers me. It bothers me that it seems like to be an Academy Award nominee, you need to call a woman a cunt at some point in yeah. this film. Yeah. Then suddenly you're in grown-up territory. There was really strong graphic language coming up, folks. There was one point where that mole woman who's got the will uh, tied up says she had a mole boyfriend. The will killed him because he was bodyguarding for a child sex ring. No one could make the will feel like this mole man made her feel. However, if there is a woman like that, we will track her down and I will feed you her severed cunt. And I was like, right, Brian. (laughs) Yeah. Steer clear of edgelord fucking territory. Because Jesus fucking tap dancing Christ... The only, w- the only way that you can get that into something like this and have it feel natural is for her to say, and I will feed you her severed cunt. And for the will to go, ugh. And for her to go, oh, yeah, so, sorry, I overshot on that one. But, <laughs> but the point still stands. Just something which makes it feel like she's a person and not just, you didn't think I was going to go there, but I'm going to go there. Severed cunts, ladies and gentlemen. Um... Please stop saying it. I know. I'm sorry. He fucking started it. That is an irresponsible fucking thing to say. And it's fine. He's still my favorite comic writer. I'm not holding this against him. Um, And I'm not going to tell him how to write. But for other writers out there, if you feel the need to be edgy, especially when it comes to introducing torture into your books, maybe not. Maybe not doing that, maybe not talking about it or even invoking it in any fashion. Doesn't need to be done. Doesn't make yeah. your book better. Yeah. You know what's a great way to be edgy? And Vaughn did that too. 
introduce an interesting trans character who is we can start to like but is flawed. Yeah. And hey, don't that's immediately that's kill that's not in a lot of comics. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, although actually, there is that there, there's that kill your gaze rule, isn't there? Uh, which uh, is usually turns up in TV shows where one character is is a is, is a is a female lesbian, brilliant female lesbian. Thank you, Alex. Well done. Um, <laughs> okay, so you got one character who's a lesbian, and then she finds another lesbian, and it's great, and they have a lovely relationship, and it's actually really quite gentle. And then the other girl, who's not the core character, gets killed, and it's like, ah, now we just did it so that you would go, oh, I'm so sad. And it's like, see, you feel for lesbians too because they're just like you and me. We know they're just like you and me. You don't have to kill her girlfriend. Instead of that, work on the character so she's not just this character's girlfriend, but is this character in her own right, which, frankly, Tara was. Now, Isabel. What's her name? The, the, the horror? Uh, they call her a... Ho- well, the type of being that she hmm. is is referred to as a horror. She's a ghost. She's a ghost, basically. She's half a teenage girl, and she's got her intestines always, like, floating around underneath her, like Slimer with his guts hanging out. <laughs> and, um... She's a lovely character, like from she's from phenomenal. Jump. Yeah, she's from Jump Street. She's like, um, she's a little bit sassy, but she's also got a heart. And she uh, immediately says, "Look, you can get me off this planet. I will basically babysit your baby for as long as you need me to." And she helps them repeatedly. And then, like when they like almost immediately, they meet Yorick's uh, Yorick's. Hello. Um, <laughs> Marco's parents and then they jab her with an axe and she explodes and it's like oh my god you killed Isabel and they say we, you can't kill what is, what's already dead and she's just been banished to another planet and then later on completely out of nowhere these two characters that we aren't going to get to know because you know when Prince Robot kills uh, D. Oswald Heist this is a guy that we know and we care about like, already, even if he's a, an antagonist. Yeah, what? It's Gwendolyn that kills D. Oswald Heist. Sorry. Sorry, you're absolutely right. When Gwendolyn kills D. Oswald Heist, because, I mean, Prince Robot did give it a fucking try. He did. Um, yeah. yeah. We know Gwendolyn. That's been built up. It puts, like, they're, they're, they, they face off against each other. It's a horrible accident. She didn't really mean to do it, but it's, it's, it happens and it feels natural. When these two fucking boob nobody bounty hunters come along with their pointy axe, poke Isabel with it, and she just explodes. And then we're told by Hazel, oh, I can't feel her anymore, so she must be dead. That's it. That was, that was uh, Isabel. We've already got, we've got another one now. We've got Petricor. The, the team was getting a bit too big. We got rid of one. That felt like the most Game of Thrones-style, heartless... We just like spring cleaning death of like, well, we don't like we've kind of she's expended her usefulness here moment. And, you know, she could still come back. And that is the kind of shitty, pointless death at the hands of a nobody character that you do come back from. And especially if it's like, of course, she's come back. We told you what's dead cannot be killed. But at the same time, it feels like they've already mourned her and it's like we've moved on. But she was a lovely character, and she they, they, they never really mention the fact that she's gay. I, 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 she remembers once or twice she had a girlfriend when she was still alive, and how badly she was in love with her. And it just it, it felt like that was a kill your gaze moment to just get rid of her. And it's like, oh, we've got a trans character just to sort of take her place. It's like, that's not, it's not a one-in-one-out policy. 
That's not, yeah, that, that, that's not how that was, works. There was room for both. Yeah. <laughs> there really was, especially given that there was a little bit of antagonism between them, so they did actually have a really good dynamic. Yeah. She was a yeah. soothing presence, mm. and that was a bad idea. Yeah. I have started to feel, and, and mind you, I love this series, and I, I'm loving the characters, and it's it keeps going really interesting places. I do feel like a little bit like the story has kind of gotten away from Vaughn a little bit. Um, it's It started as a pretty small-scale thing. The world was mentioned, but it was, you know, it was these two characters, and it brings in, okay, they get the babies, they get Isabel, fine. They get, and his parents come along, fine. You know, and, and this various, this and that, and the other thing happened, and, it, and it's fine. But it started to feel like now you've got all this stuff with, uh, the robot kingdom, and you've got all this stuff with the will and the various bounty hunters, the will and the brand, and what's the what's the stock? The, the stock. Thank you. That's yeah. that's the word I was looking for. And it's just suddenly this this story is is so big, and I, I think it feels I I suspect maybe Vaughn is feeling a little maybe overwhelmed now, perhaps. Like, it's, it's kind of, this is not, he didn't really realize this was going to get this big, maybe. And maybe that's some of where that comes from. Mm. I agree. I that, thought yeah. I hated that. Makes <laughs> sense. It's, it, the scale is constantly doubling. Yeah. Every time yeah. you get, you, you know, you start with two planets and then you have four and now you have eight and now you have 16. And before you know it, they're bouncing backwards and forwards between an entire galaxy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're coming up on issue 50 next month. That's a lot to throw into a comic. Yeah, so that's a lot to throw into a comic, and it's easy to get away from you. Yeah. That's what I said. They had uh, 55 issues of Why the Last Man, to put things, to put things in perspective. So, and that yeah. had a very definite end. They yeah, were working they had an towards end. a very specific point, which... They may be with Saga, but we won't know until they're finished. Yeah. Vaughn has said that he's not sure where it's going to end at this point. Exactly. Uh, the will uh, is, uh, and the whole freelancer side of this is uh, exemplary of the, we're not sure where this is going. <laughs> this guy turns up, uh, I thought Clive Owen would play him excellently. Just this guy, yeah. like he's, yeah. he's very... Uh, blunt and brusque, and almost his, almost wooden in his uh, delivery at uh, times. A lot of people really don't rate him as an actor. I like <laughs> him. I think he's got a lot of charisma. Uh, so the will is this sort of like uh, prototype Han Solo bounty hunter, and with this cape and lying cat. One of my favourite like uh-huh. Orco characters. I love lying cat so much. For those who haven't read it, it's just a, a giant scaly. Uh, turquoise cat that just it's a Mr. Bigglesworth Egyptian hairless thing and it just sort of scowls at you and doesn't say or do anything until you tell a lie in which case it just goes lying and I thought Helen Mirren could be the voice of lying cat Ooh, yes. Um, yes the will is besotted with the stalk but when you reread it there's no real time for these two together so Prince Robot kills the stalk who's this extraordinary looking spider woman Incredibly pale, eight eyes, no arms at all, lots of legs hidden under a black dress, stripped to the waist, breasts out. Quite dismissive, very dangerous. Uh, Who has this sort of weird, alluring sexiness going on, but 
you never really see them together. They're chatting on the phone. She gets killed by Prince Robot, and then the, the will decides he's going to hunt Prince Robot down and kill him. So we've barely gotten to know the will, and the will's searching for Hazel, and now he's going to kill Prince Robot. And then he meets Gwendolyn, who's an ex-girlfriend of... I need to call him Yorick again, Marco. And uh, then they, like, them busting um, a, a little, a little girl out of the the sex trade in um, Sextilian, the sex planet. <sighs> we visit a sex farm for sex hookers. Um, is is a really great sort of moment of showing that the will has some ethical backbone there, and he just like he's he's seen that this is going on, and now he can't sleep, and so he's becoming a character, and then. Right about the time you're like, right, so where are they going to go with this? Sophie stabs him in the neck because she ate a bad plum. And, uh, you know, she's this, this lovely little girl, but, like, they, the, the planet that they're on has a weird hostile system that keeps people that they're on on it. And then the will gets stabbed in the neck by a little girl who's subsequently traumatized. So he's dead. And then he's in a coma. Comes back years later, obese. And depressed. And it's like, what the fuck are you doing with this very, character? Very depressed. Yeah. Um, just a, a small <clears throat> aside about the relationship between the Will and Sophie, yeah. by the way. I loved what I said before about the way individuals' motivations get teased out in this. His desire to rescue Sophie. She doesn't have a name at this point. She's just referred to a slave girl. He gives her the name Sophie. You don't find out his real kind of impetus behind this until like the very end of okay of it yeah um i think there's a it's it's hinted at a little bit earlier explain than that what it is because yeah. okay we we are not going to be oblique about reference okay fair done. enough um so another bounty hunter turns up later in the story called the brand and it turns out that she's the will's sister lena hetty by the way yes. yes 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 and her name is sophie so the Will has named this girl that he rescued after his sister. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, again, it seems like when he first wants to take her away from the, the lifestyle that she has, that it's kind of, you know, just being used as a tool to show that this man has an ethical backbone, that, um, that he just can't bear the idea that this little girl has been so badly mistreated. But he doesn't exactly go on a rampage to rescue all the other little girls that are doubtless having this happen to them. At the at the end of the story, when um, the mole woman is going back into his memory, severed so and so. Yeah, um, <laughs> she sees uh, the the story play out where um, their uncle, who is a bounty hunter, comes back to their house um, where they live with their father um, to take them back to their mothers, 
and it is strongly hinted at in that exchange that their father has been sexually abusing Sophie, as in the Will's sister. The brand. Yeah, exactly. Who, by the way, also gets written not like, she's a great character. It's like, oh, she is. get and rid then, of her. Boom, she's dead. Yeah, again, she's if gone. you're with the uh, freelancers, your life expectancy yeah. drops to almost nothing. Yeah, absolutely. You're one of the 20 minutes. Yeah. Well, they make a, a they Spitfire make a, pilot. Yeah, they actually make a joke of that. She, uh, The stork says, again, in none of the flashback, the stork says to the Will, are you having some kind of midlife crisis? And he says, I'm not middle-aged. And she says, in our line of work, we're, we're both past it already. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it continues but yeah, so the so at the very end of the story, you you get that his motivation behind wanting to rescue slave girl and naming her Sophie is that he's rescuing his sister when he never could when mm-hmm. he was a kid. Mm. Another absolutely wonderful thing of uh, Sophie was just a couple of panels when she's they're just relaxing on this idyllic planet that then turns horribly hostile on them just before Sophie sticks a knife in his neck. She's Lie, reclining against the flanks of Lion Cat and she mutters my name is Sophie I'm six and a half years old I can stand on one leg for a really long time my favorite color is blue green I want to be a doctor or a dancer when I am grown up I am all dirty on the inside because I did bad things with and Lion Cat immediately cuts in with lying and then mm-hmm. Sophie cuddles up next to her and it's just this wonderful moment of nah you don't feel that actually you're just telling this is something you're telling yourself and you're telling yourself it because you've been told it by other people and that's inordinately complex for a six-year-old but sophie's a wonderful character Mm. yeah yeah there's also i'm just wondering if if lying cat is simply identifying that that is not true not necessarily that sophie doesn't believe it but just that that is not true I think that's uh, yeah. that's what so I that's, got from that's her. That's a reassurance that to her that even if she feels that, it's not real. Yeah, she she's not dirty go. or broken or wrong. Mm. She is, you know, she is a wonderful person regardless. Absolutely. And and mind you, yes, she's a six-year-old, but she's a six-year-old who's been through unspeakable, yeah. awful shit. Yeah, and she's had to grow up, you know, Very way quickly. too fast. Yeah. 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 Which is something that's emphasised later on when um, I think it gets to the point where she's about 10 um, and Gwendolyn is trying to protect her and in doing so tries to prevent her from making certain decisions for herself. And she's pretty firm about, I need to be allowed to make this choice. Mm-hmm. Which I, I felt very torn about that because... I, I'm like, I get where you're coming from, but you're 10. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I respect the desire, but you're 10. Mm, yeah. And then there is also the, um, the slightly uh, shading factor that you know that Gwendolyn's reasons are not entirely selflessly motivated. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Is anybody's re- are anybody's reasons entirely selflessly and selflessly motivated? No. And no. that's why they're yeah. engaging. There's no entirely pristine character. Of course. Everyone's yeah. a little dirty. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe Squire. Yeah, Squire oh, is yeah. a sweet little kid. He's the uh, <laughs> the son of um, uh, Prince Robot the Fourth. gets uh, introduced late, uh, late in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, initially um, he is kidnapped in kind of a, a mirror of Hazel. Mm. Um, he's taken by somebody who wants to use him as leverage against the robot kingdom. Yeah. They, 
one thing that they never really they haven't yet gone into, but it feels like they kind of have to. The robot kingdom are applicable to the 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 the, the wealthy in our world. They're, they're the ones who have all the money. They live in ridiculous palaces. They're, they do have their underclass who work like dogs and die uh, in, in the streets like uh, Metropolis. Mm. The black and white TVs as opposed to the white <laughs> TVs. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it feels like they joined the uh, the war and funded it. They've not gone into whether they're making much profit from the war. Uh, as far as modern day war comes and, and goes that's what war is about it's about the the wealthy pulling strings to allow massive massive conflicts to occur that will line their pockets i can tell you exactly why they're involved in or that involve war. or avoid embarrassment sometimes <laughs> side note we recorded this several weeks ago way before anybody started talking about war with syria yeah. But I can tell you exactly why they're involved in that war, mm-hmm. and um, I'm just trying to think whether they ever actually state it outright. It is certainly strongly implied. Even so, it would have been my assumption, given their very divisive social structure, that they have this core of monarchy that have all the wealth, all the power, make all the decisions, and then this underclass that do all the grunt work and aren't allowed to change their stars um and that's that as long as your country is involved in a war and your people have something outside their own borders to focus their attention on they're not starting any revolutions yeah mm-hmm. it'd be like you know if uh, a big political decision that you'd made is going really tits up and you look like a complete incompetent boob every single day and more and more information comes to light that this thing ain't going to work you might start hypothetically. talking hypothetically <laughs> about engaging in conflict with a, uh, a major foreign power that you suddenly are going to start scapegoating for all the issues. All of them aside from the fact that um, the, the, the issues that they are actually culpable for, the, the, the ones which got you into power in the fucking first place. Um, I don't know. That, that's applicable to all kinds of things. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> The way that war works and and has for a long fucking time now is that it's the poor who get sent to the front lines to die and the rich who stand at the back lines counting the numbers. And uh, they're going to have to really make more of a uh, a serious statement about it by the end than they have about religion and abortion. Mm. You know, how hate is stoked by those in power, cultivating conflict to maintain that power. This is what dystopia is made of. It's what we should have paid attention to. Well, yeah. this, this feeds into, um, going full circle, um, what you were saying about Clara's statement to heist the... Uh, you, you don't see the grace in defending this patch of land that's yours and was your family's and that you, you basically draw all your history from. There is a world of fucking difference between somebody choosing to defend their own patch of land purely through their own choice because that's theirs and they don't want to give it up and somebody being told you will go and fight for our country. You're going to go to yeah. this land and yeah. kill these people who yeah. are a threat to our way of life. Yeah. And it yeah. comes down to personal choice. Mm-hmm. Well, especially since it, and I have a hard I have a little bit of a hard time buying this, the fact that they said this war has spread to every inhabited pal, pla, every inhabited planet in this galaxy. 
all of them are involved. I'm like, really? I think what's what's kind of suggested some or kind of what Star I, War. What I what I gathered of it is that the the war between um, the original two planets got to the point where they realised they were going to destroy each other. Two planets, moon and planet. Moon and planet. Okay, sorry. Two as, uh, astronomical that's bodies. That's no moon. <laughs> that's a space station. Um, yeah. So they they both of their powers realised if they continued to fight on their own ground. They were going to destroy each other. And so they went off and started battles in various random places just to be fighting on territory that wasn't going to fuck up their own supply line and, uh, you know, poison their own water. And gradually, almost possibly accidentally, other factions start getting involved and then so they go over to this planet and they have to battle there and then they go over to this planet and it's how was this thought out i can't even imagine this like imagine like making like if i say say england went to war with russia and they were like right well we're gonna fight in italy and we're gonna fight in australia and we're gonna fight uh in the pyrenees and we're going to fight on in Gibraltar for strategic sheep purposes. And <laughs> I, I don't even, I can't even, like, it's, we're already reaching the point where it's, it's less about infantry and it's more about cyber war. Mm. Cyber yeah. war. Yeah, All well, of those 80s that's, novels. That's, that's not really a factor in this universe. It is extremely chaotic. And I think that, for me, makes it far less likely that the end... Uh, resolution to this story is going to be it's a grand conspiracy theory the two uh, main parties in the war are actually working together simply to keep the entire galaxy at war with each other we never uh, we never get to see like the the wreath high command we never get to see the um yeah. uh, uh the, the the wing high command do we yeah we get to see oh. the prince the robot um, so saw, that's about yeah, we saw king robot once we yeah. see we see the person who hires king uh, prince robot um, very briefly, or not? No, not hires him, but instructs him to go and uh, kill Marco and hmm. um, and um, yeah. the whole. In fact, they want the whole family destroyed, don't they? Um, we do see the horned lady who wants Hazel brought back to her. Mm-hmm. She, I think, she's the one who hires the will. You see her a bit more often, but you don't really see her interacting with any kind of political system or anything like that. It almost just seems like she's maybe. A secretary of something. Well, she. Uh, it was meant. Marco mentioned that she. Um, that she is high up in the uh, Horn High Command, and she had that secret meeting at one point. Mm. Mm. We're talking about Gwendolyn here, right? No, no. Um, the, oh, oh, the other one. Oh, never the, mind. Yeah, the blonde right. lady uh, with the unicorn horn. Yes. No. Never mind. Then I, I take it back. Um, Gwendolyn's in this for personal reasons. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> oh hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, but yeah, it's um, the idea of, you know, fighting proxy wars, and I, I love kind of that Vaughn is addressing this, because the proxy wars of the Cold War are still showing amazing, like, not amazing, but, you know, terrible results to this day. Maybe astonishing? Astonishing, yeah, yeah. 30 years after the end of the Cold War, and we are still feeling the impact of these proxy wars in Southeast Asia, in South America, in the Middle East, that the Soviet Union and America 
fought with each other with other people. Mm. America was permanently scarred because of Vietnam, and that was started in a, 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 a small percentage of the reason was to be seen to be controlling the spread of communism near to China. And yeah. then it was maintained for is it 20, 20 years mm. because they couldn't be seen to be pulling out. But part of what I think is needs to be looked at on a mass scale and it and it's been looked at on a smaller scale after world war Two, the leaps and bounds that took place in the field of psychology simply because so many people who'd been affected by the war wanted to look at the human psyche and work out how one could equal the other Mm. how people could do such terrible, horrendous things to each other. And and the, the psychology field was advanced massively by uh, Jewish psychiatrists who either directly or within their family had been affected by the Second World War and were like, how the fuck does this happen? Just, I'll research this until I die. Just tell me why this happened. Um, yeah. But I think that on a, a wider scale than that, you have... So many countries in the world that look at the effects of the wars they get involved in in terms of, okay, what long-term impact has this had on us economically? What long-term impact has it had on us politically? But they don't look at the effect that it has on the the psyche of your nation and the uh, the generational impact that it has on your people and the fact that they will think in certain ways for decades if not centuries because of what happens in that war and Mm -hmm. therefore because of what people who survived that war will tell their children well and specifically talking about that in terms of like we as a country and america specifically saying that have never reckoned with the psychological cost of of the uh of the civil war yeah, it's it's unpleasant to have to address the cost of war, and I think part of what's going on in Saga is Vaughn is laying that out, mm. and Staples too, because I want to give credit to the artist who usually has a lot of impact on the plot, mm. but is laying out, they're laying out this war has a cost beyond individuals and beyond lives. It affects nations and cultures and peoples in ways that cannot be changed and cannot be reversed absolutely and in this they demonstrate in multiple ways the idea that we are all connected um whether that be in a a more abstract spiritual sense uh whether it be in the in the political um arena or or simply family the way you have all of these and and i loved this that they express the network of an extended family by virtue of they start off with this little core nuclear family that's like this really intense couple that then becomes um a a three once they have their child and then they add parents-in-law and then they add cousins and siblings and ex-girlfriends friends of the and friends of the family and uh, mentors and mentors ex-wives who turn up and save them because of this <laughs> obscure connection that shouldn't mean anything anymore but does father made my history 
fought for what he thought would set us somehow free. He taught me what to say in school. I learned it off by heart, but now that's time to. Now I know what they're saying in the music of the brain. Saga is both astonishingly chaotic and also so interwoven with each other that you can't help but accept that what should be incredible coincidence makes perfect sense that these people who have these somewhat far-flung connections just keep running into each other and affecting one another's lives and the fact that it all comes down to this this motivation of having this child at the bottom of this huge pile of people who needs to be yeah. protected. Um, and that being the thing that, that continues to drive them all forward. I love that. I love the fact, by the way, that you could go through this series and you could take all of um, Hazel's little narrations and her little asides about parenting and, and you could make a parenting book out of that. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, it yeah. wouldn't be very long and it would be kind of preliminary. Like, you know, here's your primer. Read this before you go into anything else, just so you're prepared for the shit. Or um, chucking it out the window. <laughs> Sarah, uh, one of our um, major patrons, asked me why Saga? You know, why, um, why am I recommending this? Well, first off, 150 reasons why I'm recommending this. But... Um, <laughs> But I would have recommended it anyway. I used the fact that it was a commission to go, right, I am having difficulty reading through this thing. I am going to get this one finished. And then I realized when I got to the end, that wasn't the end. Shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I was having difficulty because uh, it, because of it, we might kill anyone at any moment. I don't like that kind of TV. I've been yeah. talking about my casting choices are all based around it being a film. I don't I don't watch that kind of TV. I don't have the time for that kind of TV. It take it is a time sink. It takes your time and it takes it saps your ability to connect with characters. Mm-hmm. D. Oswald Heist actually even mentions the whole kill your darlings thing, uh, which seems like another one of the theses of this um, uh, book, which is don't kill your darlings, kill everyone until the only ones left are your darlings. <laughs> the problem with that is what you then end up doing is killing characters that are in development. And rather than killing, say, one major character in a book and uh, and making that really count and making that death impact on everyone and, and really weighing that one down, you kill four, five yeah. or seven people in that book. And, and and you fail to develop them along the way because they're not your darlings. And so what that then happens becomes a sense of spring cleaning, a sense of clearing out, a sense of just like leveling the playing field. And uh, I, I remember after the Red Wedding, people were saying, well, this is his way of getting rid of all the psychopaths and uh, getting rid of all the really, really 
Uh, yeah, exactly. I know you're laughing. Getting rid of all the really good people so that everyone left in the middle is just shades of grey. Fuck that. That's not what happened at all. It was still fucking crawling with psychopaths for season after season after the Red Wedding. There was... I know everybody loves that kind of TV. I really don't. It's exhausting to me. And there was an element of that in reading this that made it difficult for me to get through. So... I used this opportunity to read through. However, my main reason for recommending Saga is that there really aren't that many comics, or frankly, much of anything out there, apart from lengthy-ass TV shows, about being a parent. From birth onwards, because we, uh, you know, am I shitting? I feel like I'm shitting. From the moment she starts giving birth through to one presumes at the end... Maybe Alana will die. Maybe Marco will die and it'll just be Hazel left. And it's horrific to even think of it. And it's frankly likely that at least one of them is going to die. Oh, and, yeah. But this is, you know, while it's wild and crazy going, you know, goings on, it also follows a, a weirdly allegorical sort of applicable young couple who are now suddenly parents and weren't really prepared for it and are having to face all of this stuff Mm. and people come just in and out of their lives and it's like well i you know like the death is a metaphor for like this is getting a bit too much for me to handle and then moving the hell on and it, it feels like a very personal take on young parentage and that's rare ironically i'd like to see it as one movie which thus defeats the object of it being a saga. Yeah. And you'd have to cut so much out of it. Yeah. Uh, but it feels like it's the kind of movie that wouldn't get a, a sequel. It would be it would be one of those um, wrinkle-in-time jobbies that uh, like some people see and some people like, and it just doesn't make enough money because the sort of stuff that goes on in this demands a huge budget. But again, I don't like TV that much because it always looks cheap in comparison to the kind of movies that I love mm-hmm. and adore. Yeah. There's like I, I, All superhero TV, all of it, Stop recommending the CW Flash and Arrowverse to me, folks. Stop recommending it. But I do have time for movies. And it feels like this could be ideally three movies to take you from the beginning to the middle to the end. But it needs to be three movies that they're not going to cancel after the first one. That's how I would do it, because this requires big-ass audience to go, this is the thing I want to talk about. Now, it would ironically, it would work best on a TV show that I wouldn't like because this needs to be water cooler discussion stuff. But I don't think it would work best as a Netflix show, which is a fucking 14 hour movie padded to hell. I think one of the other difficulties that you have in producing it in any kind of visual medium is that you need it to be made by somebody who is willing to go the whole hog on the content, but not use that content as sensationalism and that is a hell of a balance to strike they almost couldn't do it it's practically unfilmable i'm just i'm racking my brains to think if i've seen anything recently that that manages it and deadpool i was about to say deadpool (laughs) it's that level of frankness and disgustingness and like the messiness of life but it's but it has guts as well it has and, and heart and meaning and it isn't just superficial shallow Slicing and dicing. Oh, handled right. This could be meantastically popular, Mm. but the handled right thing is the italics. But it's the ham-fisted element of, uh, you know, we'd do this just so that people would go, oh, sex, yeah, let's watch that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Only this point there. 
But yeah, it's almost it's almost like anybody who wants to watch this can't be allowed. <laughs> <laughs> it is something that could be beloved. It is something that could be widely loved. And just keeping these things in comic book form isn't enough. Like people like that is what the major entertainment is now. It feels like why the last man's been waiting for years to become a thing. We've got Lock and Key on the way, Legion, Runaways, Cloak and Dagger, Black Lightning, really mostly superhero-related stuff. And, and there's a lot of stuff that people are excited about. iZombie. Yeah, iZombie's still doing well. Well, that was it. Uh, Walking Dead is obviously the other absolute huge yeah. comic property that, I yeah. mean, it was it was big as a comic, but it yeah. nev- it would never have been as huge as it is ever as a comic as it no, is now. No, absolutely not. Yeah. Again, a show yeah, I had, that, that, can't stand it, don't want to watch it. Just too many characters going, oh, I'm now I'm dead. And just too much, yeah. like, shock factor shit. Ooh, who's Negan going to kill with a baseball bat? Don't give a flying fuck. Don't <laughs> right care. Right there with you. <laughs> right there with you. Yeah, I stopped watching in season five, I think. About yeah. season three, I realized that every season is just the yeah. same story. Yeah. Uh, this is probably going to go out to about 12 people who've actually listened this far. Um, it's it's a pleading on my part to stop recommending TV to me. I don't have time, folks. I'm sorry. Yeah. We have the time in making our show to watch movies. That is what mm-hmm. we love. I'm quite I'm quite taken with. I love him so much. He's so cute. Yeah. Goose is wonderful. Um I know he's supposed to have I'm thinking he's supposed to have like a Scandinavian accent, but I read him as Scottish for some reason. <laughs> so I guess he's like, you know, the How I Train Your Dragon Scottish Vikings. Or Folks, How I Train Your Dragon. Um for, if you haven't read the comic at all, uh Goose or I've always read it as Gus. It's Goose though. He's got a little um now, isn't it? Goose, yeah. Yeah. Um uh, is a little tiny baby seal with uh, uh, dungarees. dungarees. They're waders uh, for fishing. <laughs> yeah. And he hangs around on the rocky seashore and carries a giant poleaxe. And rides a walrus. Yeah, he's an adorable yeah. little character and uh, would you know, maybe reach rocket raccoon levels of, uh, of people loving him if he was in the show. Mm. Uh, slash yeah. movie. Yeah, and he's, uh, he's clearly an adult, but he's so cute and adorable because he's, he's tiny and it's great and he's clearly he's also a farmer yeah mm. yeah, yeah. And he's and maybe that, the only pure character like he's the only say, like totally good guy yeah and yeah. i think that kind of his appearance is very deliberate in that because it's like if you want to point out how horrible somebody is it's like they club baby seals on the head <laughs> That's what is. anybody who would try to harm gus is somebody who would club baby seals on the head and you know they're horrible but he yeah. is he is the the character who has sort of the most 
untouched core of don't hurt people. Yeah. And yeah. and the degree to which he is able to um, negotiate <clears throat> that purely is massive. Hmm. Um, it, he does it way better than Marco, but then, of course, his life is not as complicated as Marco's. Yeah. And I think he's actually older than Marco as well. He's had time to gain a certain amount of wisdom hmm. that... And it's that kind of homespun wisdom that comes from living a very simple life, which he wants very much. Yeah. But also feels that his... He also feels a sort of sense of obligation to help people when he can. Mm. Yeah. The central theme, as I see it, uh, is something we've kind of already touched on in the uh, show, but I'm just going to like sort of lay it bare. And uh, I could be confounded that by the end of this uh, um, saga, uh, it will actually have a different take home. Uh, but that it's it's there just below the surface. It's something that we feel when we're at our most calm. And uh, it's something we feel when we're on certain substances. Um, that lower borders and boundaries between us, that we are one family. And this is, you know, hippie shit out the window. It doesn't matter what differences exist between us every organism is connected in some way and the destructiveness that these impulses that we feel and the need to segregate is is part of life that we have to overcome before realizing this and that just seems to be the that all that really matters about that saga is that uh, it, it's a it's a small family that grows and grows and shrinks and grows and is connected to countless uh, individuals who all see this tiny child and think I've got to protect this kid, and, and they just drop everything they're doing and immediately like that. Several characters have been like intent on one thing and then just drop it as soon as they see, see Hazel and decide, nah, this is something that needs to be protected. It's, it's simply a story that revolves around a universal love which stands in opposition to the level of self-hatred, the level of self-destructiveness that war equates to. <laughs> and it Talking about that, I absolutely, absolutely agree with you. In talking about that, I want to bring up the the character of Hazel's teacher mm-hmm. mm. at the refugee camp, whose mm. whose name is escaping me right now, but she's the half grasshopper. I want to say, like a giant Noreen. blue praying mantis thing. Yeah, Noreen. Yeah. Noreen. Yes, yes. And when when she discovered, you know, she just she ends up finding out about Hazel. Uh, crossing of two species basically and i was terrified and i was really afraid that they were going to go and the teacher would betray them and they didn't do that and i was you know i was so relieved and i was so happy and i love her character especially when she was the one what was it she's oh i i read it to you something along the lines of reading is good or books are good something uh let me. Oh, let this me. Is the um, anybody who thinks that one book has all the answers hasn't read enough books. Yes. 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 Yeah. It's the one. Yeah. Yeah, and that that you know, I, I hey, anybody who loves reading is instantly someone who is endeared to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Actually, that's uh, that's another reason why Alana immediately um, became appealing because, uh, like, as of issue three or four, like she's clearly into reading. Um, when she gets into Heist's um, hideout, uh, she her words are bookgasm. Yeah. 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 His his walls yeah. lined with um, books, and it's <laughs> they're nerds, they're geeks, they think yeah. incredibly deeply about everything that they're presented with, except the things that they react ridiculously impulsively to. <laughs> yeah, and that's why it's hilarious. Uh huh. Alana thought, and and Marco thought way harder about whatever the the the, the heist book, mm. which I suddenly can't think of the name of. But that book, Alana and Marco thought way harder about that book than they did about, you know, running off together. Mm. Uh, an evening smoke? A nighttime smoke. A nighttime smoke. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that, that, that was yeah. it. That was it, yeah. Yeah. Don't they, they have um, a, a very um, blunt conversation about the particular sequence of events that actually results in Hazel being conceived? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that that was impulsive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One thing that I just love about Saga in general also is Vaughn is good at writing diverse books and making that an integral part of the book. And that kind of plays into the whole sense of a family is the people who love you. And if I was reading an art or uh, interview with him, and they asked him, you know, do creators have a responsibility to be inclusive? They were talking about Paper Girls, his other book at this point, but it's the same concept. And basically his response was, um, I feel that artists have a responsibility to be good. That said, I think it's much harder to be good without trying to reflect some aspect of the real world. And the real world has never just been a straight white guy world. I think, in a way, the characters of Saga are fighting against that sense of the world having to be for the people who are currently in charge mm. rather than for that people yeah for everybody that people can make their own way in the world it doesn't have to be the way that's laid out Alone, breakfast table in an otherwise I think the final uh, um, point is uh, that uh, in opposition to the uh, unifying love is one of the reasons that the freelancers keep fucking up is vengeance. Um, they, uh, they, they're on a rockier path. F- uh, too much of, of what they're uh, embroiled in is not because of love, but because of uh, hate and anger. And the destructiveness of obsession and 
that the path of vengeance is consistently laid out. And it's the the reason that the Prince Robot, sorry, just Robot, sorry, just Four is still alive <laughs> is because he uh, abandoned to some degree that sense of um, bitterness that was in there. And he started exploring other sides of himself, which makes him a really interesting character. By the way, Tom Hiddleston with a TV on his head. Yes. 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 100% yes. Because yes, you immediately absolutely. need to love this guy, but also think he, think he's a colossal prick to begin with. Hmm. And Tom Hiddleston can do that. And he's got to be able to come back from being a colossal prick. And Tom Hiddleston has already done that. At least, yeah, at least twice. twice. Yeah. Oh, yeah, at least twice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, just as a tiny aside on that, um, you get that in The Will as well. As he slowly deteriorates mentally... Mm. He has an ongoing conversation with the stork, who yeah. is dead. And when his sister is killed, the brand, she turns up as well. And he even admits to himself that these are aspects of his own mind that he's having these conversations with. The stork is continually insisting that he seek vengeance for her death. Uh, not brand, actually. In, on, the, on the planet, she switches around because she's part of the planet's... Um, ecosystem that are trying to keep him there the stalk then flips that round and, and starts saying stay here you you clearly gwendolyn likes you clearly uh, you've got something going with sophie here mm. um and that yeah, but that's that's I, specifically the planet trying to keep him there isn't it, it yeah it may be but that that part of it is still inside his head mm. no that's very Th- true there is still his misgivings otherwise he wouldn't be so conflicted yeah otherwise he'd just go no but the point that I was getting to is that when um, when his sister turns up, she says, don't seek vengeance for me. It's not worth it. She loved him. The stork didn't, really. Mm. And that, I think, is is kind of a, a slight extension of that idea of vengeance being this destructive road, mm. that people who really love you will not want you to seek vengeance on their behalf. Yeah. Well, and I... I want to mention, too, something something that came up earlier, the fact that it was brought up earlier that, you know, the Will was so in love with the stock. And the more I think about it, the more I'm like, I don't think he was. I think I think he's created that in his own mind. I think that's his flashbacks being colored by what he wished were true. Mm. And it justifies his desire to do something. Yeah. He has no idea what else to do with his life, so he might as well pursue vengeance. So he's sort of made himself retroactively love the stock. Mm. Yeah. He had an empty life at the very beginning, and throughout the course of his journey, that life fills up with people and uh, personality and love, and he could simply stop and just re-examine, Even, like, like the fruit was telling him to. Mm. But... He he doesn't, and he's, he's at the moment. Is he still on this path of vengeance? Is he going to find Prince Robot and kill him? into someone's TV at the moment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like to think not, but I I can't say that's that's probably my hope coloring things more than it is the actual anything to do with actually the character. I hope that he doesn't end up just being Alter in uh, Why the Last Man. Yeah, she yeah, was obsessed with no. a very straightforward, specific thing, and it ended up costing characters we love dearly mm. but it, it would make sense that the freelancers would have vengeance as their guiding light a lot of the time because as you say they uh, many of them seem to have extremely empty lives they don't have much in the in the 
realms of sort of self-directed purpose. They have the jobs that they're being paid to do and then not enough time or it's not safe for them to get introspective enough to work out what they actually want to do because then they start well then you'd have a little side story that was gross point blank Um, (laughs) so if if they're going to have a path that is theirs vengeance at least is something is which is dictated from an external circumstance which is what they're used to um, and it doesn't require them to do much in the way of self-examination So that's it for Saga for now. We may conclude this one in like a special episode later down the line. Depends on how many more books come out. It may be that there's only a couple more books, and I might just do a little epilogue that we then slot onto the end of this show. But otherwise, that will do for now. Thank you very much to Caro and Debbie. And where can people find you? You can find us both at sequentially-yours.com. We talk about uh, comic books and comic book media, movies, etc. together. And you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at MoonPanther22. And and I'm. you can either find me as Debbie Morse or Best at 8300. Thank you very much. Uh, we will be back next week. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's Zip. out. The production of School of Movies is funded by Patreon. The saga of our super special $15 sponsors continues. Starring Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Sarah Montgomery, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicol, Jameis Enright, Mark Luge, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, and introducing Lorraine Chisholm. And next week, it's a little independent picture you may have heard was coming out called Avengers Infinity War. Avengers Infinity War.